You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Welcome everyone to the Helena Knight Public Policy and Regulatory Group podcast, Eyes on Washington, in partnership with the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition and Black Women's Health Imperative. Today's discussion will be about genetic kidney disease. We would like to extend a special thank you to Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Trevere Therapeutics for their sponsorship of this discussion. So joining us today is Dina Darlington, former Interim Director of the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition and now a consultant, as well as Sarah Healy, Cystinosis Rare Disease Patient, and Agnes Costello, consultant and volunteer for NEPCURE, Kidney International, and Asian Women for Health. First, I'd like to um, ask Dina, can you talk to us a little bit about the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, the work that you all have been doing, and why it's important for you all to be a part of these types of discussions? I'd love to share more about Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, or RDDC. We're a multi-stakeholder coalition. We're under the umbrella of the Black Women's Health Imperative, about a little over two years old. Um, And the whole impetus and and sort of birth of our DDC came about when a number of multi-stakeholders reached out to our president and CEO, Linda Goler-Blunt of the Black Women's Health Imperative, and really wanted to have a organization that focused on diverse communities within the rare disease space recognizing the extraordinary history and work that the Black Women's Health Imperative has conducted over a number of years. We have a very diverse steering committee that we report under, and then also we are separated into five different work groups. Those work groups came about after a number of discussions over an extended period of time where we brought in thought leaders to really help guide us and help us understand sort of what are the barriers and challenges. So we brought in researchers, we brought in health equity organizations, we brought in rare disease groups to really have a clear understanding of those challenges and barriers that impact rare patients in diverse communities. And out of that, we came about with five work groups that really represent the key challenges we have in this space. The first work group is diversity in clinical trials. We all know that that's a significant issue from a health equity standpoint and that we face as a country right now. Also, we have a provider education work group to sort of address some of the challenges that we have from providers education, not only on rare disease, which is pretty robust, but also uh, from a health equity standpoint. We also have a patient and caregiver work group. And that work group, we really examine what are the gaps that rare patients in diverse communities face and try to develop evidence-based solutions to support that. And we also look internally at patient advocacy organizations and try to help them understand appropriate tools for reaching out or even understand how they're currently reaching out 
to diverse communities and what are their DE&I efforts internally. We also have a policy work group in which we have signature legislation for RDDC in which we try to encourage more diverse healthcare professionals to work in the rare disease space, but also to encourage diverse healthcare professionals, healthcare students to really look at this as a career. And then finally, we have our delay and diagnosis work group. We all know that that's a huge challenge barrier as it pertains to the rare disease community, as well as diverse communities. So we really try to structure our organization in such a way and that we develop key work groups to address the many challenges that both the rare disease community face, as well as those diverse communities. And When you step back from the issue, you really recognize that having a rare disease is very similar to uh, the health disparities that we experience in our healthcare system. So we're really proud of the diversity of our stakeholders, our commitment to produce evidence-based solutions to help address these issues, and then also our our target focus on rare and inequities in the in, in our current healthcare system that has impacted traditionally marginalized communities of color. Well, thank you for explaining to us the amazing work that you all are doing at RDDC. So I would like to start off with Sarah. And Sarah, can you talk to us as a, as a patient about cystinosis and your experience? Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Cystinosis is Eliza's almost star disorder, and it's ultra rare. Only about over 500 in the U.S. have it, and a little over 2,000 in the world. So you can imagine how difficult it is to find a doctor who knows about it. I think there's maybe three that I know of that are experts in it. And I think one of them is a a pediatrician doctor. So it has been difficult, but I think luck was on our side when we were little because we, we grew up in a small town in North Dakota and they didn't really know anything about what we had, you know, because we started developing symptoms a little before 12 months old. So after mom and dad had us, I say us as I have a twin sister, Jana, who also has cystinosis. We're identical. First, they thought it was vitamin D deficiency. Then they thought my mom and dad were neglecting us. And then they thought it was rickets. And when they couldn't figure it out, they sent us to the University of Minnesota because they deal with rare conditions or conditions no one's really heard of. So they thought it'd be best if we went there to be seen. So they saw us and Jana at that point was too sick to be tested on. So they tested on me and they found out what we had was cystinosis and you know mom and dad and is from a small town and they're like what but luckily mom took the lead because her specialty in college was lab technician so she knew all about the different types of labs and what they mean and she knew the right questions to ask and she was very aggressive about what she thinks that we needed and she wanted to be involved in the process and dad was more like the the comedic relief to give us some relief from all the testing and procedures we had to go through at such a young age. And luckily, an attending took interest in us once they figured out what we had, and he found out there was a clinical trial for our drugs that 
supposedly help treat cystinosis because at that time it was still in the clinical trials and they didn't really have any way to treat it. So we were lucky enough for the doctor to get us in the clinical trials to get the medication and the people who were in the clinical trials got to stay on the medication. And I think they didn't approve the drug until the 90s and we were born in 83. So we were lucky enough to get into the clinical trials so we could get the medicine right away. Unfortunately, (laughs) mom and dad had to deal with our uh, tantrums of not wanting to take it because yes, we had treatment, but it tasted disgusting. They tried everything from bribing us to, you know, you can imagine how hard it was for our mom and dad to try and get us to take this liquid medicine that just tasted disgusting and we didn't want to take it, but it was the only thing that was helping us. Can you tell us exactly what cystinosis is and, you know, why is it a genetic disease? So both parents have to have the recessive gene in order for the kid to get it. And it's also one in five chance that their kid could have it. It's more likely that they'd become a carrier than actually get it. My mom, when she first wanted to have kids, the doctor told her she couldn't have kids. So they adopted our first sister. After that, they found out that she could get pregnant. So she had, I think like every two years or so, (laughs) a kid. So there's seven of us total. And me and Jana were the youngest and we were the ones to get it. It's it's Eliza's almost storage disorder. And to explain it more, because the group I'm a part of, Cystinosis Research Network, describes it best. It's a rare genetic metabolic lysosomal storage disorder caused by a mutation in the CTNS gene on the chromosome 17P13, which results in an abnormal accumulation of the amino acid cysteine in various organs and tissue throughout the body. Basically, the first thing it affects is our kidneys. And these crystals that form inside the amino acid have nowhere to go. So they basically push their way out of the amino acid by the time they have formed crystals. And those crystals attack the organs in our bodies. But with treatment, it keeps it in check and keeps it from attacking any other organs. But unfortunately, most of the time when they catch it, it already uh, does some damage to the kidneys because it's the first thing to go. And then it affects the eyes. Cysteine crystals can build up in your eyes and you can become blind without treatment. We also have treatment for that. It's specialty eye drops that you put in every day which are really expensive, (laughs) you put in every day and it helps keep the cysteine crystals at bay so you can have better eyesight. But with treatment, it only really affects the kidneys if you, you know, continue to take the medication and the eyes. But before the treatment, it would start kidney and then it would go to the eyes and then it would go to muscle wasting, which affects, you know, swallowing and walking and having the strength to like, you know, open a something as simple as a jar. So it's, it's a pretty extensive rare genetic condition, which, you know, a lot of rare conditions don't have medication or treatment or clinical trials to even help them treat their disease and live a semi-normal life. 
I, I really appreciate you being willing to open up and share for others to learn. And so I wanted to talk to Dr. Costello a little bit about Sarah and her sister's experience and her family's, quite frankly, experience with this. It's now 2021. Are there tests that are being administered, you know, to infants to catch this type of rare disease? If you could just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think when I think about Sarah's journey, very similar to a lot unique, but also similar to a lot of patients that I've come across with rare disease. Traditionally, if we focus on kidney disease, a lot of times patients won't see a physician until, you know, they have symptoms or like swollen legs or difficulty going to the bathroom, or it can be a routine screen. So they look at, you know, blood levels. They look at analysis of the urine. I think, it, you know, sometimes they look for crystals as well. And then it's really with a thorough clinical examination, sometimes the, the physician will suspect something and order additional tests such as an ultrasound. Or if they're still not sure, they may consider doing a, a, a procedure where they do a kidney biopsy, where they take a very tiny sample of the kidney tissue and examine it in, in the microscope. But even despite all that, a lot of times, the cause of the disease is unknown, and you have a disease, especially rare disease, where it affects not just the kidney, but other manifestation. It makes it very complicated and challenging. So with a proper approach, I think more of comprehensive approach instead of proper, let's just talk about comprehensive approach, factoring in family history and tracking all the various multi-system manifestation of the clinical presentation, then there is a, a push for genetic testing. I think now we have that means. Genetic testing there's, it has gone through such revolution in terms of the ease of the test and the amount of different genes that we know associated with disease. I think that has shifted a little bit, but there's also a lot of other challenges. But typically when I think about rare diseases, it's really diagnosing. Sarah, I think you speak to it. Your mother was pushing and being aggressive. I think being a, your own voice and doing a research and working with your physician and finding that partnership will really help. And also, you know, never be afraid of approaching it with, should I look into my family history? Let's look in genetic testing as a, as a way to help kind of, you know, solve the puzzle, so to speak. Can you speak to us a little bit about who determines whether a patient should receive genetic testing? When you think about genetic testing, there's different ways of thinking about it. You know, you have the newborn screening where, you know, for certain disease is now part of a, a, a panel for newborn screening. For someone that is a little bit later when they start having symptoms, I, I see it as more of a partnership with a physician to kind of push for that genetic testing. Because you can look at a panel of many different genes, but you have to have something that you want to hone in on. In this case, we talk about kidney disease. So if there's a kidney dysfunction, I think it's really important to partner with your physician to kind of say, you know, I have a fam my family history is as such, and it's been shown in a lot of literature that 25% of patients with family history of kidney disease have a genetic kidney disease. And recently, a panel have met, I think it's, uh, it's the group, the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, Cadigo, gathered a group of experts, and they talk about, you know, who should get genetic testing. I think from a physician perspective, there's been a push for, can we set up proper guidelines so that we can get these patients screened sooner? So on top of the list, it's really a positive family history of kidney disease. 
early age of onset of kidney disease, like in, in Sarah's case, you know, they experience, you know, symptoms really early and you want to catch that early, especially if there's other organ affected as well, then we should start, you know, bringing genetic testing sooner rather than later. And also, a lot of times, it's really working with your doctor to highlight some of the things that I find patients sometimes are reluctant to speak up for themselves. Something that may be trivial could be a trigger for something that is a sign of a possible genetic disease. Do you find that there are some barriers for diverse communities as it relates to genetic testing? And if so, can you speak to that? I think absolutely. Um, we can spend hours talking about the barriers. I think it's definitely there. It could be social economic status, but to me, it's more awareness. I think a lot of patients are not aware that genetic testing are available. I think that's kind of like the, the fundamental is like if they're not aware that genetic play an important role and family history play an important role, they're not even going to consider genetic testing. The other thing is also there's some cultural perhaps, you know, in, in my culture, in the Asian culture, there's a stigma of like, I don't want to share my family history or talk about inheritable diseases because you know, it affects reproduction. So there's also that cultural stigma of like not wanting to seek genetic testing. And the other barriers, I think it's, it's obvious, is access, especially community of colors and some of the um, other communities where they're just not even getting the typical preventative care that they will need. How would you consider even talking about genetic testing when, you know, there's relatively limited access to preventative care? So I think definitely access is an issue. And then even if you have access, a lot of times with insurance coverage. I think there's still something that a lot of groups are working on to ensure that we do have access to genetic testing for these patients. You talked about education and really educating communities and mm -hmm. working with different community stakeholders so that individuals who may not have you know, access are learning about their options and things that they can utilize to make sure that their health is being addressed appropriately. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And, you know, I wanted to turn it over to Dina because I know she had a few questions for you all as well. Sure. Thank you, Shana. So again, I'd like to just thank our guests and welcome them. Very excited to have both of you here. Dr. Costello, I'm going to jump over to you. Um, so what are the challenges to getting tested and are there opportunities to support better testing? Yeah, I feel like in general, when we talk about general testing is sometimes a lot of patients, especially in, in our communities, we don't look at preventative care in, in a typical way. We only seek care when there's symptoms. So there's often a delay in diagnosis in that regards. It would be ideal to have routine screening. You know, we see in the ideal world, we go for our annual physical once a year or, you know, remember when you when you were little, you'd bring your kids to the pediatrician when they do the typical screening, which is just, you know, maybe the occasional blood test, a urine analysis, very typical traditional, you know, panel of, I would call them health tests, if you want to call them, just to establish, to identify any, any abnormalities or anything that need to be follow up. So I think there's a definitely a lack of preventative care and screening for kidney disease or any general health in the community. So that's one aspect of the limitation. In terms of genetic testing, I think that's another layer of that, right? It's There's limited ways, especially in, in diversity community, for screening. Typically, people would not screen for genetic disease unless there's a cause. So without the appropriate testing for preventative care to identify the signal, that would be hard to generate a need for genetic testing. 
And, and I know I've heard you speak on a urine test. I know that that can be just very simple. And is that something that we think it's a challenge um, as well? So I have to be honest, I am going to use some simple terms that, that it's always easy for me when I was in practice to ask someone to pee in a cup versus to say, can I come and poke your blood, you know, take a piece of your tissue or sample your blood. So I think, you know, urine analysis is very easy. And not only does it pick up kidney disease, it can pick up diabetes. They can pick up a lot of simple things. I just wish we can move to a situation like an analogy, right? If you go into CVS, you can get your blood pressure check. Can we go to a community center and just do a, a simple urine analysis to get an early um, understanding if there's how your kidney health is functioning? So I, I, I'm really thinking there are non-invasive ways to get a good understanding of your, uh, to assess your kidney health, and we should be pushing for a little bit more for that as an initial screen. There a problem with with reimbursement? I know that genetic testing, maybe, maybe not, but um, even just something as simple as a as a urinalysis. Um, is, is are there barriers from a payer standpoint? So typically, I think from most payers' perspective, a urine analysis it's reimbursable. It's not expensive. Like even if it's out of pocket, it's not an expensive test, and it shouldn't be. Versus, you know, genetic testing can be expensive, but if your physician is an advocate for you and you push for it and there's a clear clinical rationale for doing genetic testing, a lot of times the payers will cover genetic testing. There's specific clinical trials looking at unique genetic kidney disease that will also offer genetic testing. I think that's another avenue of getting that coverage is participation of clinical trials. There's also other companies out there that are running genetic testing specifically for kidney disease. And they're good resources where they can explain the process, have genetic counseling, and then they'll work with your insurance to get coverage. Mm. So I think there's definitely barriers in terms of reimbursement, but I think there are ways to circumvent that. And in my mind, the most direct route is really working with your physician and pushing for it and make sure that there's a clinical rationale to cover the genetic testing. Because you do need to get to the bottom of what is causing your kidney disease. And not just what's causing it, but what are the treatments that's most effective for you? I think to me, that's another, another rationale as well, because we know certain genetic tests, um, certain um, kidney disease will not respond to immunosuppressants. So why am I subjecting my patient to high dose corticosteroids for a long time? But if I do a genetic testing, I know exactly what it is and what are the right therapies so I can minimize the patient's exposure to not effective medicine. Thank you so much for that. So, Sarah, I'm going to come back to you. And I know I, I started off this list of, of questioning around genetic testing and, and just testing in general. So the doctors tested you when you all were di originally diagnosed. I'm assuming from a general standpoint that there's still general urinalysis or, or general testing that's involved to, to treat your disease. None of our family members really got tested to see if they had the the gene or the recessive gene or anything like that i'm i'm assuming it's because they didn't want to know but um as far as uh the other types of testing we see we see a nephrologist in uh at the u of m where we got diagnosed every six months and she also has some knowledge of cystinosis so whatever she doesn't understand she's in contact with experts in cystinosis which are usually 
the one she's in contact with is uh, in San Diego. So, <laughs> and then um, they always check our blood every three months, three or four months. They check the CBC panel, the, you know, our GFR, make sure everything's going good with our kidneys. I didn't personally have to have a kidney transplant until I was 33 and I'm 39 now. And Jana had a kidney transplant four years before me. So we were lucky enough to both find donors. I mean, she didn't have to do dialysis, but I had to do dialysis for a few months, which was a whole nother challenge in itself because having a rare condition, they all want to follow the general guidelines on how much they're supposed to take off if dry weight. But I take like 40 pills a day and you can't restrict me on fluid if I'm trying to swallow all those pills. You know, the doctors never really listened to me until it was too late and I had built up too much fluid. So then they had to postpone my kidney transplant until they got all the fluid off and my heart was better and it just became this old debacle. So, yeah, we, we have a regular general practitioner, and then we have a nephrologist. And sometimes we see other doctors, like when I had a throat issue, I saw an ear, nose, throat doctor and a speech therapist. And, you know, things will arise, but our two main ones are our general practitioner and our nephrologist. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Did your sister have a kidney transplant? She had one as well. I, I think that you just said that she had one as well. Yes, yeah, she had one and they transplanted her first and left her two kidneys in. But she had complications because her two kidneys, I mean, they weren't helping her because at this point they just kept dumping. You know, they weren't filtering anything out. So because they weren't completely shutting off, her new kidney went to sleep. So then she had to have a second surgery to get the kidneys out. So her new kidney would wake back up so she wouldn't have to lose a kidney she just got. I just applaud you. I mean, you're so engaged and educated on your disease. And, and I'm not quite sure of the work that you're on the patient advocacy organization. Did you all start that organization? So we, me and Jana became a part of Cystinosis Research Network when we first discovered them because we lived in a small town. No one knew about cystinosis. We kind of felt secluded because they didn't understand the side effects. They didn't, you know, they thought we were different and they didn't really understand us. And, you know, once we went to college, we wanted to kind of find more people like us because we knew there was somebody else like us. We just, we didn't know where to look. And then, so we looked on the internet and we found a group called Cystinosis Research Network. And we saw that they held conferences like every two years. They had a, a conference where all the families and adults and kids and teens would meet up and they'd have expert doctors there talking about clinical trials and new testing. They were trying to see if it would work or any further advancements. And we went there and we saw what they were doing and they Later on, they said they wanted to start an, you know, an adult group under them, you know, to try and since we're living longer to try and um, get the adult voices heard because they have different problems from the child and teen perspective. And they weren't sure what those, you know, problems were or how to reach out to the adult community. So they created an adult group under them 
the adult leadership advisory board and me and Jana became board members of that. And we have, you know, other people in our group like Brian and Karen and Allison and Christina and a couple others. And we try and um, communicate the problems adults have and we try and reach out to them and see if they want to talk about it on a podcast or what problems they want us to talk about or just uh, try and get our voice more heard because when cystinosis was first discovered, they didn't really have a treatment at all. So basically you could get a kidney transplant, but then they didn't expect your life expectancy maybe a little later than 10 years old before, you know, you to pass away. So once the treatments were available, you know, people started living longer and they were trying to figure out the new problems because all the doctors with cystinosis were peds doctors because none of the adult doctors knew anything about it, which a lot of adults run into problems with doctors not wanting to take the time to get to know our rare disease. So then it becomes a whole problem of us trying to find a doctor who's willing to take on our rare disease so we don't have to travel like thousands of miles just to see someone who knows, you know, what we're going through. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Dr. Costello, I'm, I'm curious, as, as she was walking through that, it occurred to me, it's, it must be a challenge for doctors to be educated on such a rare, rare disease. How do we ensure that medical students and residents and young physicians are more aware of these rare diseases? Because we all know this leads to not having that diagnosis, that delaying that diagnosis is just so often a huge barrier for rare disease patients and those rare disease patients. And, and I would say compounded for those rare patients in diverse communities. Being a transplant clinical pharmacist in practice for a long time, I do see a lot of kidney transplant patients with either unknown etiology, unknown cause, or rare disease. And I think I shared with at a different form about a patient I've seen with primary hypooxaluria type one, which is very the the disease course is similar to what Sarah experiences. Stenosis is accumulation of oxalate in the kidney, in the eyes, in the bones, etc. And I have to be very honest, it was the first rare disease our team has seen and our nephrologist was knowledgeable enough to pick up the extra oxalate. The whole team admits we didn't manage the patient as well as we should have because we didn't know how best to manage the fluid, how best to manage the kidney and the mobilization of, of the oxalate to prevent additional damage. The patient ended up needing a second kidney transplant, and the patient's doing well, but it was it was already delayed, and he did have other you know clinical manifestation. Having had that experience as a clinician working side by side with the physicians, we are frustrated because rare disease is rare, and it takes a compassionate surgeon, physicians, and the whole team to really kind of care for the patient and listen and. Because it's rare disease, I think we need to start from the ground up, not even just thinking about rare disease, but part of the physician training and any clinician training. Not, I don't want to just target physicians because I think it's all, all healthcare provider have to be compassionate and, and listen. I think that's number one, being a good 
healthcare provider so that we can diagnose the, the disease and manage it better is, you know, good listening skills. But I know they do tr get trained in, in medical school and when I was a pharmacist, we get trained as well. The other aspect is there are, we need to leverage some of these experts uh, that are known in these rare disease and allow them to discuss it with the community so that the community is not afraid of these rare disease. You know, it, it's all about education and sharing resources. We do have these center of excellence that maybe focus on certain rare disease. I think it's, it's for them to train and demystify these rare disease. It is rare, but it's not that rare. At the end, as a patient, it's, it's about listening to the patients, really understanding and how best to manage. There are resources that the community physicians, other physicians can go to. So that it kind of, it, it's really a partnership. So I, I look at it as different ways of listening to the patient. Um, also is identify these mentors in these rare disease so that the community can refer to and be partners with. The more we learn, the more we share, the better. We talked a little bit about sort of the centers of excellence and, and, the, um, and engaging with community healthcare professionals. I'm curious if you could give us, share some insight with us as to how, how can we be better stewards for communities and engaging with the African-American Black community, the Asian-American community, the Latina community, the transgender, all, all these different rural versus urban. How can we be better stewards in that regard as well? I think I may be naive. Um, this is my goal. I think there's many organizations addressing this, but it's sometimes I just think of it theoretically and I'm even for me I'm trying to like how do I make it happen is health literacy empower these patients to better understand health we use big words big languages I think patients are so no I wouldn't even call them patients a, a lay person will even be afraid to have those conversations and I think it's about the ground up if I can we somehow at an early level um, in anybody's exposure to education is empower them to have the knowledge and the ability to have a good conversations with their physicians, really understand health. And I think you and I have a conversation previously and I said, you know, sometimes I feel like even for me, when I go to a doctor's office, I forgot what am I supposed to say to the doctor. I see the doctor, I get nervous. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is he saying? I only registered, you know, what's she saying? I only registered like five or 10%. So I think it's important just to be prepared when you visit when you visit the physician. Kind of empower the pe the um, the layperson. I'm just going to call them layperson because it can be anybody, right? To have the confidence to ask the right questions. It may be a small question, but like we discussed earlier, a small question could actually be very important. So it's really the fundamental of health literacy and empowering the patients to have the confidence to have that conversation with a physician or a healthcare provider. Yeah, and I think also having a care partner with you as well could take some of the anxiety, some of the weight mm -hmm. off of the patient. They're going through enough already, but thank you so much. You are always so insightful to me and always appreciate our dialogue. And, and Sarah, thank you so much for all the work that you've done to really educate others about the disease. I appreciate that. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Shauna, and I don't know if you have any additional questions. Well, thank you, Dina, and thank you, Dr. Costello, and thank you, Sarah. 
Sarah, your journey and just the strength that you have shown is so inspiring and, and just the number of lives that I'm, I'm certain that you have impacted just by your willingness to, to use different platforms to educate folks like myself included on this, your rare disease and some of the things that, that we can be doing in our communities to make sure that folks are educated. Dr. Costello, the same, really appreciate you being with us today and, um, and just helping us to have a better understanding of some of the things that we can be doing to help individuals with kidney disease, as well as with just rare diseases in general. So thank you for your service and the work that you do. We thank the audience for listening in. And, you know, Dina, I don't know if you had a chance to share the different ways and access for folks to be engaged with RDBC. And Sarah, you as well, if you want to share how folks can be connected to the organization that you're a part of, please, this would be a great time for you to share that. All right. Um, well, Cystinosis uh, Research Network and ALAB or Adult Leadership Advisory Board, we are a wealth of knowledge and also help the community out. We have grants and funds to help pay for medications and, you know, financial hardships. And we are always open if anybody has any questions about our disease or something they're going through that they don't quite understand. There's always a way to reach out to us. The website is uh, www.cystinosis.org. Thank you so much. We hope that you all will engage the Rare Disease um, Diversity Coalition in the future. We really appreciate you listening to this session. It was such a, a, a pleasure to, to have our wonderful moderator, Shauna Watley, but also our guests, Dr. Costello and Sarah, our patient who, who spoke so eloquently about her patient journey. If you'd like to contact us, you can please tap into us at our website at Rare Disease diversity.org. Again, that's rarediseasediversity.org. And then we're also on other social media platforms such as LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors of this important topic today, Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Trevere Therapeutics. And thank you for taking the time to to listen to our um, discussion on rare genetic kidney disease. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.